Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Word of God for our study this Sunday is our first lesson, Genesis 3, verses 8 through 15, which is printed in your bulletin. Dear friends in Christ, imagine for a moment that out of the blue, as a result of a lawsuit that you had done nothing for but that included your name, you are given three and a half million dollars free and clear. It's enough to pay off all your bills, including your mortgage, pay for college for the kids, and secure a comfortable retirement, so long as you don't blow through it all at once. You still don't exactly feel wealthy, but you know that you shouldn't have any financial worries for the rest of your life. And now, imagine that after a few years, a distant relative, <clears throat> whom you hardly knew, dies and leaves you another million dollars. You have money to spare, and you did nothing to get it. But you're a modest person, and you don't want to attract the wrong sort of attention, so you don't advertise your good fortune to anyone. And one day you go to visit a dear friend that you haven't seen for a while, and almost immediately you know something is wrong, and you ask, Mary, what's wrong? It's funny, she says. I never cared much about money, but now that I need it, it seems it's returning the sentiment. It wants nothing to do with me. Nine months ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. The doctors gave me good odds for beating it, but it required long, aggressive, and expensive treatments. You can probably tell from my appearance that I'm still not done. Pretty soon, I was missing so much work that I lost my job. I could maybe file a suit about it, but lawyers cost money. And of course, with my job, I lost my health insurance, so who knows what I'm going to do when the bill for my cancer treatments comes due. Five months ago, I found out I didn't have enough left to pay my mortgage, and now that I've received my second foreclosure notice, it looks like I'm going to lose my house. And if that weren't bad enough, I let my car insurance lapse, and three weeks ago, I got into an accident coming home from chemo, and now my car is unusable, undrivable, and I have no way to get it fixed. I'm walking and taking the bus to my treatments now, and there are some days I can barely make it through the door. And you reply, Wow, Mary, I, I had no idea. That's terrible. Somebody really ought to do something to help you out. You should try calling the local social services office. And there's probably a lawyer somewhere who would take your employment case pro bono. You should ask around. But I guess what would really help you most would be for some charity or something to, to step up and, and, and just give you the money you need to, to pay your bills and keep you going until the, the cancer is beat and you're back on your feet. There's got to be somebody who can help. I guess we just can just hope and pray that, that somebody does the right thing and, and gives you what you need. And Mary appreciates your, your compassion and your concern and even your hopes and prayers, but when you leave, 
her situation has not changed, let alone improved, one bit. Now, before you got your settlement, you had financial needs, but they were filled for you. And with the inheritance, you received the ability to more than meet other people's needs. But when confronted with the deep need of your friend, despite your love for her, you looked for somebody, somebody else, to meet her needs. Maybe it was old habit. You just weren't used to being the one with the means to meet someone's needs. Maybe it was fear of having your wealth exposed. Maybe you told yourself that Mary wouldn't accept charity from you anyway, so why bother? Maybe it was more miserly. You're just getting used to having the money, and you're not ready to part with any of it just yet. Whatever your reason, you choose not to be generous or merciful, even though you know you have exactly what it needs, your friend needs most. Is that the way we want the world to work? Where our first lesson picks up today, Adam and Eve, who at that moment represented all of humanity, were in deep and terrible need. They had no idea what was going to happen next. All they knew was that a previously unknown and wholly unfamiliar fear fear of death, which they had no experience of, and fear of God, whose wrath they had never encountered before. They had done the one thing, just one, the one thing that he had commanded them not to do as a way of showing their love for him and trust in him. At the serpent's suggestion, they had eaten fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and yes, now they knew what they had not known before. They knew they had done evil. They knew they deserved death because of it, and they knew that they had blown it. They had destroyed their perfect relationship with God, who is only good, and their Creator had every good right and reason at that point to call a do-over, to give his rebellious creatures the death they deserved and do a, a hard restart with his creation to keep evil out for good. We wouldn't and couldn't blame him for it. After all, if any of us makes something that goes bad in hardly any time after we make it, we usually start over rather than stick with the error. But what does God actually do? Adam and Eve heard the voice of the Lord God who was walking around in the garden during the cooler part of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Well, of course they hid. It made no actual sense, of course, since God knows and sees everything. But somehow they instinctively understood that Seeking the presence of the Almighty as sinners might be a dangerous thing. And of course, they felt quite exposed since they had just become aware that they were naked. Still, what does God do? The Lord called to the man and said to him, 
Where are you? Now this is not what we should expect. It is surprising. It is gospel where we would naturally look only for law. Did the Lord actually need information about Adam's whereabouts? Of course not. So what was he doing calling out to him? It was all about grace. Undeserved love for undeserving sinners. God, the one who had been offended, was reaching out to the one who had offended him. Instead of coming at Adam with the full force of his righteous judgment against his sin, God was coming to him, pursuing them to offer an opportunity for reconciliation, a much different kind of do-over. Now, did Adam say then, Oh, thank you, God. I missed your presence, and we were so worried you were going to destroy us. We have sinned. Please forgive us, Lord. Sadly, no. The man said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. It was an explanation where confession was called for. Adam's pride was not ready to deal with God's grace. So God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? That sounds like nothing but law. God's questions ring like accusations. And since he already knew the answers, they were even more than that. But it was grace again that echoed through the garden. The Lord's goal was restoration of the rebels. And so he pursued them again and persisted in offering the opportunity to confess their sins and then count on his mercy. So does Adam turn from his guilt and embrace God's grace? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate it. Yeah, that's pretty much the opposite of confession and or contrition and faith. Sure, Adam admits to eating the fruit, but he absolves himself of responsibility. Who's to blame? <laughs> Not just the woman, but the Lord himself. After all, you gave her to me, God. None of this would have happened if you hadn't done that. Not much earlier, Adam had rejoiced and praised his creator for the wonderful gift of his wife, who completed and complimented him in every way. But now she was a liability. And he was happy to pin the blame on her if it meant he could avoid responsibility and escape punishment. And maybe, maybe for just a moment, he thought it had worked. Because God moved on from him. The Lord God said to the woman, What have you done? He just doesn't stop, does he? Still, still he offers the disobedient the chance to confess. 
going to them when they by right should come to him in abject humility and beg for his forgiveness. Now Eve knows that she can hardly blame Adam without incriminating herself. You put him in charge, he should have stopped me, would hardly work in her defense. So she points in another direction. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She didn't lie, but it still wasn't much of a confession. She lays the blame at the feet of the serpent. Well, he might have had feet, but if so, he would have them no longer. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the livestock and more than every wild animal. You shall crawl on your belly, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. The strange circumstance that Satan entered the serpent and gave him speech to tempt Eve and Adam into eating the fruit comes to an inglorious end. God gives him no more opportunity or ability to speak. But what defense of his actions could he have offered anyway? He was just doing what Satan serpents do, work to destroy all that is good of God's creation, and bring as many as possible down to perdition with him. And so the good creator of all curses this now corrupted creature, confirming its twistedness by contemning it to crawl and slither forevermore. But even with that condemnation came grace for human sinners. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. This, this is the gospel. The first time the Lord promises salvation for sinners. There's not much detail in it, but there is all that is required to meet the deep and terrible need of Adam and Eve and their broken hearts. It's the promise that a champion will come for them. A champion who will suffer injury from the Satan serpent, but will in turn destroy the Satan serpent with a head-crushing finality. We know the rest of the story, of course. And it is not a story that makes mankind look any better than Adam and Eve. Because it is a story of more sin, more rebellion, more disobedience, more taking the Lord's love and mercy for granted. And yet, through every age, with the patriarchs and through his prophets, to tribes and kingdoms and scattered peoples, God still pursued them to restore them. And God still persisted with His grace, offering chance after chance to turn to Him in repentance and faith and be saved. Until, finally, the time had fully come. And He sent His Son, Jesus, to be born of a woman, the seed of Eve, and to live under the law and fulfill the law as every man must do, but only the perfect God could do. 
and as the God-man, Jesus suffered and died, Satan crushing his heel. But in being crucified for us, he redeemed us with his blood, satisfying God's wrath against all people's every sin. And with that and with his resurrection, Christ put an end to death's power and fear, and having thus disarmed him, he destroyed the devil's power. He crushed his head. And with the work of Christ, now completed with Calvary and his empty tomb, there are no questions left about God's grace for sinners. The how and the why and the what and the where and the when have all been answered. All that is left is for the sinner, for you and for me and for everyone, to turn away from our evil and rebellion and embrace the grace that he stands there waiting, eager to give us. He pursued you with his gospel. He came to you with the water and word of baptism. He persists in offering you forgiveness, life, and salvation in Christ's body and blood in his supper. Just as he pursued and persisted with Adam and Eve in the garden the very first time. The Lord loves you and wants you with him always. His grace does not run out. It runs after you instead. Your deep and terrible need, like mine, your need for forgiveness for doubting his goodness as our first parents did, eh, this thing feels good even though God says it's wrong. He, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Your need for pardon, for taking what is wrong to take. <sighs> no one will be, I care about will be hurt if I take this candy bar from the checkout lane, this box of post-its from the office supply closet, this deduction I don't deserve on my taxes, this sexual favor from someone I'm not married to, our need for restoration after casting blame anywhere but inward Hey, I'm just doing what the culture and psychology tells me I should do. God calls it sin, sure, but they tell me I need to say yes to these desires and impulses. So what am I supposed to do? Your deep and terrible need is met by the Lord God with grace and mercy over and over. He forgives you. He restores you, reconciles you, saves you for the sake of Jesus Christ, his Son, who grants you eternal life in paradise at the end of this creation so that you may live with him in his new creation that will never be corrupted. And that is the way we want the world to work. So let's go back to your friend Mary. And now, now you understand that, that since you have been so blessed with grace, that is money, to spare, you want to give generously as you have been given generously. And so you tell her, Mary, Mary, I am so sorry to hear about your troubles and your need. I had no idea. But what I do have is money. 
Let me help you. I can give you whatever you need. And she says, whoa, I wasn't asking for your charity. <laughs> I didn't say I couldn't handle this myself. I'll let you know if I really need anything, but back off a bit, okay? And you are frustrated. You want to help. You know she needs your help, but she refuses in pride. And a month later, when you find out she missed a chemo treatment because she collapsed on the way from the bus stop to the clinic, you offer again, please, please let me help. I, I have plenty of money and I want to share it with you. And you need it more than I do right now. And she says, did I ask you for money? I'll get by. Just give it some time. We'll beat the cancer and then I'll take care of everything else then. And three weeks after that, when another friend tells her, you that the bank is about to kick her out of her home, you come to her again. You track her down and practically shove money into her hands and say, I'm not taking no for an answer, Mary. You have a need, and I have exactly what can meet that need. I love you too much not to share the grace, money I've been given. And maybe this time, having been beaten down, her pride and sense of self-sufficiency finally shattered, she says, yes, thank you, please. And you meet her need. And she is helped. That's what you want. That is the goal of your love and of your pursuit and of your persistence. And now the bigger question. What do you have that an unbelieving and therefore unsaved friend, neighbor, co-worker, even spouse, deeply desperately needs. I'm not aware that any of us have millions of dollars sitting around to spare, but each of us has the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have grace to spare. So what are you going to do about that person's deep and terrible need for forgiveness, life, restoration? You will not wait for somebody else to step up, will you? You will follow the lead of your loving Lord. Just as we see Him from the very beginning, with the very first sin and the deep and terrible need of the very first sinners, we believe and therefore we speak. We take His abundant grace in Jesus Christ that every day increases and overflows in us and our hearts and we pursue the sinner we love. The proud, the discouraged, the suffering, the lost, the confused, the hurting, the twisted, the troubled, all of them. The sinner that we love, we pursue we love Him, we care for her, and we pursue Him with that grace, and we persist with that grace until His or her need is met with repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. And He 
or she is saved. And we all rejoice, rejoice, rejoice together today and tomorrow in paradise. And we give thanks. That is what we want. That is the goal of God's love and our love. Lord, grant this grace to us all. Alleluia. Amen. Please rise. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.